So we have spent this service focusing on Jesus Christ and the fact that he's risen from the dead. And other people have been able to say it. Colby, Kaiki, I'm going to say it now because this is my joy. He is risen. Yeah. And he, he, he was risen last week and the week before and the week before, and he, he is risen tomorrow and next week and the next week and the next week, just like what Mark even said in the prayer of confession, that, that sometimes we, we can focus on this Easter Sunday like, woo, he's risen, and then next Sunday, oh my goodness, I'm so tired. But he is risen. Praise the Lord that he is risen. We, we continually celebrate in this service this morning on Easter Sunday, and there are churches around the globe that are celebrating the fact that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. But there are some people that probably think that by our celebration this morning, and even every week, that they might think that we're ignoring reality by celebrating. Why are we rejoicing when there's so much suffering? Did Jesus accomplish anything, really, when there's all this brokenness in our own lives, in our neighborhoods, in our town, in our state, in our country, around the world? Karl Marx, the German philosopher, once said that religion is the opium of the masses. Meaning, what he meant by that was that religion helped to dull people's senses to the painful realities of this world. It served as an opium to deal with life. And that seems to be a dominant view held by many people, many irreligious people in our society. And actually, in some ways, I can understand why people would think that way. I think that there are many people who probably do turn to religion in order to help them to cope with life, just living in this life. There are many people who hold on to, I think, vestiges of Christianity in order to hide from reality and to ignore pain. But what about us? What about people like us who say we believe everything that the scriptures say? We believe that the scriptures are totally true in what it teaches. We hold to Jesus' literal death and literal resurrection. In singing joyfully today, are we blinding ourselves to reality? Or are we actually facing real life? I mean, we just sung about a man who rose from the dead. That's a pretty crazy story, right? And in some ways, it sounds like the ancient mythologies, and people might be tempted to say, well, we're in the 21st century now. We know more about science. We know more about philosophy. And so we don't need to go back to these kinds of stories. We've progressed now beyond that. There's a British theologian who did immense study on the resurrection claims. And he once wrote, I'm going to read to you, what he wrote about the fact that Jesus' disciples proclaimed the message of the resurrection and how stunning even their proclamation would be in the context of the first century. 
The man's name is N.T. Wright, and he wrote this. In not one single case do we hear the slightest mention of the disappointed followers of other first century messianic movements claiming that their hero had been raised from the dead. So there were other movements in the first century where people claimed to be the Messiah, they had followers, and then that, fo- then that, that person who claimed to be the Messiah dies or is imprisoned. We have no other instance where any other followers would say, he rose from the dead. They knew better. Resurrection was not a private event. Jewish revolutionaries whose leaders had been executed by the authorities and who managed to escape arrest themselves had two options, give up the revolution or find another leader. Claiming that the original leader was alive again was simply not an option, unless, of course, he was. Unless, of course, he was. That's a very important line to contemplate. First century thinkers would not have thought of an individual physical resurrection. Greeks would think of maybe an individual soul resurrection, and the Jews generally thought of resurrection as a corporate event that was physical, but not an individual event. For, for the disciples to claim a physical individual resurrection was something that generally nobody would have thought of to come up with. That doesn't make sense. They wouldn't have made up that message. Unless, of course, he was risen from the dead. Now, if Jesus did not physically rise from the dead, then we shouldn't believe any of the New Testament scriptures. We have, there's no reason to if Jesus did not physically rise from the dead. But if it's true that he did rise from the dead, then everything that he said and everything that the disciples, the apostles wrote in the New Testament must be taken with joyful and immense seriousness. If this narrative is true, which I firmly believe it is, then we aren't ignoring reality. We're facing reality. And that's really the main idea of the sermon today. That Jesus' resurrection forces humanity to face reality and frees Christians to face reality with steadfast hope. There is no way that these disciples would have made up this story. And not only that, that they would all die for it. I think it was Blaise Pascal who said, I believe those witnesses who get their throats slit. Jesus' resurrection forces humanity to face reality and frees Christians to face reality with steadfast hope. So I'm going to start with Jesus' resurrection forces humanity to face reality. Years ago, I was listening to a story of a woman who went through a tragedy in her teen years. When she was 17 years old, she was um, out on a lake and she jumped into the lake and when she went in head first, um, 
her neck snapped as her head hit the bottom of the water and she was floating and she would have died except her sister turned around and saw her and rescued her out of the water. And from that point in time, from 17 years old, she became a quadriplegic. She is actually 73 years old today and she is the longest living, surviving quadriplegic. Many of you probably know who I'm talking about. Her name is Johnny Erickson Tata, and she, she tells in her story that after this incident occurred, she really struggled with what to believe about God. And she went on a search, even in different religious books, to see what these other religions speak regarding those who suffer. And one thing that she discovered was that the Bible speaks most about and to the suffering of this world. Out of all the religious books that she looked into, the Bible emphasizes the reality of this suffering world and comes alongside the people in the midst of suffering like no other religious book that she went through. Not only that, but God himself, the Son, came into this pain-filled world, and he himself suffered in his life and in his death. And what she saw was that Christianity is not an opiate. Christianity actually causes her to face life head-on. And she's been living with quadriplegia for 56 years. Now, I agree with my dear sister in the faith. This year for us as a church family, we've begun a journey in Genesis and within the first couple of verses, we discovered that God is not only the creator, but he is the one that acknowledges the chaos and promises to bring order from chaos. So that when Adam and Eve get to the point of sinning and rebelling against God, it's not a surprise to him and it doesn't overpower him. Instead, he, he in the midst of creations crumbling into disarray because of Adam and Eve's sin and punishment, we read of one that God promises to bring hope to crush the serpent, meaning there's going to be one who's going to reverse the curse and restore all things. And while humanity, while humanity now rejects God and seeks to live life on their own terms— God is going to send one who will reach into people's hearts, change them, and give them a new home someday where there is life eternal. Now God makes that promise in Genesis 3. The seed of the woman is going to come and crush the serpent. But does it happen immediately? Just want to make sure. Does it? No, it doesn't happen immediately. The good news of the serpent crusher does not rid the world immediately from trials. You say, what does this have to do with the resurrection? Okay, I'm getting there. This God does not ignore the suffering. Resurrection forces us to face it, okay? And I think we see that even very clearly in the oldest book of the Bible. Do you know what the oldest book of the Bible is? Job. Some people might think Genesis because it gives the creation narrative, but more than likely Job is the oldest written book of the Bible. And what is the book of Job all about? Suffering. Suffering. Here is a man who in one day, all of his children die in catastrophic events. 
Can you imagine being told one after another after another, and your son has died, and your child has died, and your child has died, and your child has died? And then, and then in the midst of this, we can all get very judgmental towards his wife. And I'm not saying what she did was right, but I can imagine the feeling. Can you imagine, Mom? All your kids have died in one day. And she says to Job, curse God and die. The, the pain is so unbearable. I can't face reality. Curse God. And Job doesn't. He continues to endure. And he even wrestles with the Lord, so to speak. And God, it, the book of Job, by the way, has the longest discourse of God in it, in all of the scriptures. In a book about suffering, direct discourse. And then by the end of that book, Job, he comes to a conclusion. He says, I, have, I had heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. And he goes on to say that he is comforted in his humanity, in his dust and ashes. In this brokenness, in his humility, he's comforted because he knows who God is and he can trust God. Now again, what does this have to do with resurrection? Because almost right in the middle of this book of Job, Job declares a hope that keeps him steadfast in the midst of his trials. And it's this, for I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. What? The, the, the oldest book in the scriptures is talking about a resurrection that's going to happen. When my skin is destroyed, I'm still going to see my Redeemer, who is God. That's who he's going to see. His Redeemer is God, and he's going to see him in his flesh. The flesh that this earth somehow destroyed, yet the Redeemer is not going to let the destroyed flesh have the last word. You hear that? There's a resurrection to come. Job is, is being destroyed in his sufferings, but the Redeemer won't let that have the last word. Isn't that glorious? Job can face his trials because he knows his Redeemer lives. He knows he's going to see his Redeemer on this earth. Now, there have been people throughout the ages who have actually said that the Old Testament really doesn't speak about resurrection, which I find to be very interesting. Even over the last 2,000 years, people say, well, the Old Testament doesn't talk about resurrection. And I, you just have to listen to Jesus. When Jesus spoke to the Sadducees, those were the people who actually believed there was no resurrection. And Jesus speaks to them and says, and as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read? I love it when Jesus says that. Because you know what he's saying is, you haven't been paying attention. Have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. 
the I am statements are the present tense. This is the name of God, I am. And he is the God of Abraham, not dead Abraham, Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive with God. And so Jesus says, there is a resurrection. Haven't you read? But there's other passages in the Old Testament that give hope of resurrection. Daniel 12, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. There is a future resurrection where some will be led to eternal life, others to experience condemnation. Or Isaiah, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. What what do we see about the Bible's teaching here? God does not ignore pain and suffering. He allows us to live in it and face it, but he declares that he's victorious over it. And this victory comes through the Redeemer because of him and his serpent-crushing, curse-reversing power, we can face a fallen world. So my question for you today, my question for you is do you face reality? When I hear people say at times, oh, religion is just something to keep you from seeing reality, I actually wonder if they're just using that phrase to help them to not face reality. Because the reality is, is what Daniel the prophet said, every single person will be raised up and you will either be condemned or you will experience forgiveness and eternal life. There is a judgment. There is one life, the scripture says, and after that, judgment. Do you recognize that? There is a God who is just. And since he is just, he is going to judge every single person. Are you facing reality? You see what you must face. The God who will judge everyone, whether they trusted him or rejected him. Some will raise to eternal life, others to eternal contempt. I think the resurrection forces us to face eternity. And if you haven't trusted in the Redeemer Jesus, you're on the precipice of eternal contempt. That's reality. That's reality. Since Jesus rose from the dead, And the disciples said, it really happened. We saw him. It forces us to say there is a life to come. And Jesus' resurrection frees Christians to face reality with steadfast hope. Jesus himself said, in this world you will have trials. And then he says, fear not, for I have overcome the world. So he's giving hope because he overcomes It's because of that promise of Jesus that we can have somebody like Johnny Erickson Tata who can say, I I, I need to live in giving thanks to my God. Or we can read in Psalm 71, 20, you 
who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again from the depths of the earth. You will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. The psalmist here is not just talking about being revived in this life. From the depths of the earth, from the grave, you will bring me up again. You, you will resurrect me. And in the light of that resurrection, I can face today. But how can people have that kind of confidence? How in the midst of all sorts of trials, when feeling tossed around, feeling tossed around like you're in the waves, crushed against the rocks, how can people have confident hope that their suffering doesn't have the last word? It's because of the serpent crusher, the Messiah. I think one of the most, personally for me, one of the most sobering and beautiful passages of the prophecy of the Messiah's death and victory is found in the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 53. Hundreds, several hundred years before Jesus came to this earth. I want you to listen carefully to some of these words. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see him and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. How, how is the serpent crusher, how is the Messiah, how is this servant of the Lord going to bring victory and hope? Well, Isaiah says here in this passage that he died and was numbered with the sinners. And in his death, he made an offering for people's guilt, which is what we focused on this past Friday night, talking about the death of Jesus. God the Son did not run from pain or ignore reality. He faced it. But he didn't deserve this. He is the righteous one. He's the one who faithfully follows after the Father, always. And yet, the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. What was the joy that was set before the Messiah? It's not the cross. It's not him saying, yes, no, I love it when people hate me. I love being tortured. No, I love experiencing the condemnation of God. He willingly took our sins on himself and it was laid on him and he became sin who knew no sin. All your sins in thoughts and words and deeds and attitudes and demeanor, everything was placed on Jesus. For the joy set before him 
which is this resurrection and ascension and then getting to the place next to God the Father and Isaiah writes it, he prays. That's what Kaiki said at the beginning of the service. He makes intercession for us. He became the mediator between God and humanity. That's joy. And, and what I want you to get from this Isaiah passage is, is clearly this is resurrection that's being spoken of because a dead person doesn't pray unless there's resurrection, right? Jesus, this serpent crusher, rises from the dead. And he rises from the dead because of what he accomplished on Friday. I hope you understand this. Easter Sunday, resurrection means nothing if there was, if there was no death on the cross, if there was no experiencing of the wrath of God on the cross on Friday. If Jesus simply died and rose from the dead, Resurrection Sunday would be a message of watch out. He's coming after you. Because then he didn't satisfy for the sins of people. But Jesus did satisfy the wrath of God. What does that mean for you? If you're a Christian, what does that mean? All your sins, past, present, future, are forgiven. In Christ, you are, it says here, so that many, are you a part of the many? So that many would be accounted righteous. God would say, on your account, righteous. But I, I, I haven't been righteous enough. Right, Jesus took your sin, gave you his righteousness. Do you know this Savior? Have you seen your sinfulness and seen God's love displayed in Christ? Have you turned to Jesus for forgiveness of sins, eternal life, reconciliation with God? If so, then Isaiah says, all the spoils of Jesus' victory are yours. It's all yours. How amazing. Amen? Jesus rose from the dead as the victorious king and all the spoils belong to all who trust in him. So as I was pondering this too, and even thinking about the connection with Genesis, I was thinking this thought, what we see in the scriptures is that the first Adam led all creation spiraling into brokenness and rebellion by taking from the tree of life. And through him is given the curse but the second Adam, Jesus, gives himself on a different tree and receives the curse. As a result, Jesus gives us back the fruit from the tree of life. Now, even as I say all of this, there are people who say, well, this just still sounds mythological. It sounds like a fairy tale. And I get it. But again, even the, the, the disciples would not have believed this if it were not true. I don't believe, at least not all of them. Not, not all of the ones apart from Judas. And not all of them would have gone to different lands and areas and been killed for this message. 
But, but keep this in mind. If you think that this story sounds odd, it's supposed to. Because the scriptures say there's only one who is God the Son. There's only one who is going to come and live perfectly. There's only one who is going to take the punishment for sinners that they deserve. There's only one who is going to rise from the dead of his own power. There's only one. So if you think this is odd, it is. Because Jesus is utterly unique. Nobody else could do this. Nobody else. Only Christ is the unique Savior who conquers death. Amen? As a result of Jesus, then, we are given immense hope. As a result of his resurrection, immense hope to cling to. In the New Testament, I'm going to share with you just three verses or three passages in the New Testament that encourage us with the reality of the resurrection. In 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Peter begins this letter with unfading, imperishable, living hope that's given through the resurrection of Jesus. And that's so powerful because if you read the book of 1 Peter, you know that Peter is writing to people who are going through various types of trials and difficulties in their lives. And he starts this letter with resurrection hope. You have an imperishable treasure in heaven. And because of the resurrection, don't ignore the life. Show the beauty and glory of Jesus in the midst of it. What does that mean for you? Trials, difficulties, pains. What does that mean for you that Jesus rose from the dead and there is an imperishable treasure kept in heaven for you? How should that strengthen you, Christian? Ask the Spirit to show you. I think of the Apostle Paul who suffered much in his life and he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. In Paul's daily living, he wants to know Jesus more and the resurrection power of Jesus so that he can endure the suffering. Jesus gives light in the midst of darkness. He gives hope in the midst of pain. But by the way, this is not Paul just saying, oh God, bring on the suffering. I just love pain. It's, he's not sadistic. But instead, I think what Paul is saying here is that don't let any of my pain and suffering be wasted. I don't want to waste any of it. In all of it, I want to know Jesus. I don't want to just get through the pain. I want Jesus to minister to me. I want the resurrection power to be at work in me so that when I am going through it, people say it's only because of Jesus. It's all because of Jesus that he can live this way. What does that mean for you, Christian? Don't, don't waste your pain. Don't just try to get through. May this be our prayer. Oh God, make this real. Jesus rose again so that we can fellowship with him 
in his sufferings and resurrection power. He did that. Do you believe it? If you believe it, that should affect your prayers. That should affect your dependence on the Lord. Oh God, show me Christ. And then I think 1 Corinthians 15, this, this chapter, the whole chapter is Paul talking about the blessings that come as a result of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is the end of the chapter where he comes to his concluding thoughts and he says, the sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Listen, if, if there is a God and if there is an eternity and, and if Jesus really did resurrect and he is the Savior, you really need to ask, what is the point of life? I think, I think everybody probably at some point in their lives ask, what's the point of all of this? What's the purpose? We look at the society in which we live where depression and deaths by suicide are on a rapid rise. People are feeling hopeless. People don't know what the point of life is. And people are literally going to all sorts of things in order to fill themselves, to feel alive, or to numb themselves from reality. What's the point of all of this? And deep down inside, I think they know. They know that there is a God. They know there is a judgment. And there is a judgment that's going to come. And if you don't trust in Jesus Christ... None of your works in this life matter. It's a waste. It's a wash. And you will rise to eternal contempt. The resurrection forces us to face the reality. But, but what if you trust in Jesus and turn to him and say, no, Jesus, you're the one who fills me. You're the one who is the Savior. You're the one that takes my sinful heart and changes it. You're the one who takes me in my sinfulness and turns me into a righteous child of God. What if that happens? If you trust in Jesus, then the apostle Paul says, your labor is not in vain. Your life is not in vain. What is vain? It's just that vapor. You can't catch it. But, but Paul says, but because Jesus rose from the dead, it's no longer vanity. Why? Because our life continues on into eternity with God himself. So Paul can say elsewhere to the Corinthians, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And to live for the glory of God means that even that matters for eternity. Jesus makes it so that anything done in faith matters for the glory of God and our eternal good. That's how powerful Jesus' resurrection is. So what's the point of living? Well, there's no, there really is no point if we're outside of Christ. But if we're in Christ, then I'm, I'm not just saying, oh yes, resurrection, I can't wait till I get there, but I'm just depressed until I get there. Instead, we have the mantra of the Apostle Paul who says, to live is Christ. To die, gain. Whatever my life, what, what, wherever I am, 
It's all about Jesus. Wherever I am, it matters because Jesus is my Savior. He is my everything. The resurrection tells us that what Jesus did on the cross really was accomplished. The resurrection gives us steadfast hope. The resurrection declares to us our King Jesus is now giving us the victory, the spoils of his victory. Do you believe it? If you do, you have hope. Though our outer bodies waste away, our inner is being renewed day by day. And someday, someday, we'll be home. Someday we'll be home with the Lord in a new heaven and a new earth. And if you have faith in Jesus, you can rejoice in these words from the book of Revelation. Let me read them here. I have the wrong verse on the slide. So hear these words. This is Revelation 2, verse 7. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things, we will say together. We will feast and weep no more. Jesus' resurrection forces humanity to face reality and frees Christians to face reality with steadfast hope. He is risen. Let me pray for us. And then we're going to hear from the choir. Oh, Lord. Glorious are you. Wonderful are you. Father, I am asking... For those who are here who don't trust Christ, who don't follow after him, Lord, would you break into their hearts and cause them to see your utter glory and beauty and majesty and that they would want you and that they would turn to you for rescue and hope. And Father, for those of us who are your children, I pray that we would not just treat today as a day to have happier emotions that we as your children, or that you as our Father would, would settle these truths even more deeply into our hearts so that as your children are rejoicing, our joy would become more full, our steadfastness would become more firm, and that we would all be able to say it's because of Jesus. It's because of Jesus that this is the case. God, grow and increase our repentance our trust, and our hope. And it's in Jesus' name we ask and pray. Amen. Now, hear these words.
Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.